0: Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, and we're going to be finishing up verses 1 through 10. You can find it on page 63 in the New Testament if you're using a pew Bible there in front of you. I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, A Camel Goes Through the Eye of a Needle. A Camel Goes Through the Eye of a Needle. Of a needle. Now, for those of you who have been here for the last several weeks, you understand that that title comes from verse 25 of Luke chapter 18. And so some of you may be wondering why that title would be used here while we are in chapter 19 in verses 1 through 10. Because if you'll recall, in those verses back in chapter 18, Jesus had an interaction, as it were, with a, a man who was a rich, young ruler. He was extremely rich, as Luke told us in verse 23. He more than likely was a a leader in his local synagogue. He said he kept the commandments from his youth. He would have been invited to all the social gatherings. He would have had the respect of the community. And most people would have believed that this man had the blessing of God on his life because of his wealth. And thus, he would have been the single greatest prospect for the kingdom of God that there ever was he had good morals he had respect and he had money and he came to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life and if you recall Jesus tells the man that he must sell all that he has give it to the poor and then come and follow him then he will have treasure in heaven but the man went away very sad because he could not disentangle his heart from the world and the things of this world. And Jesus said to his disciples that it is hard for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of God, and that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed and they said, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied to them, and He said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Uh, yet when we fast forward to Luke chapter 19, we have a poster child for that very possibility. A rich man entering the kingdom of God, namely in the account of Zacchaeus. And so Luke 19 should give us all great hope. Because if, if you would have taken a poll in Jesus' day and asked them, and said, well, which one of these two people is the most likely candidate to enter into the kingdom of God? The rich young ruler in Luke 18, or the rich chief tax collector Zacchaeus in Luke 19, every single one of them would have said, the rich young ruler. No one would have guessed that Jesus would have said that salvation would come to the house of Zacchaeus from what others could see Zacchaeus was beyond salvation. And had we all lived in the time of Jesus and lived in Jericho at that time, we would have all said the exact same thing. And so what Luke is recording for us here in these verses is the real and transformative power of God in converting a sinner unto righteousness and the supreme manifestation of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Or in other words, we're watching a camel go through the eye of a needle. We're watching what is impossible with man be possible with God, namely the conversion of the most unlikely candidate for salvation in Zacchaeus. So I want us to finish up this section this week, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 19. If you're there with me in your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of the living God. And it says this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead And he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried down and came down and received him gladly. And When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we pray that your word would go forth and change us, to conform us into the image of your glorious Son. Help these words to not only just come into our ears, Lord, but they would be planted deeply within our hearts, so that we can live them out for your glory. Father, we pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. All that God does, He does so to the praise of His glory. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things to God be the glory forever. Amen. This is the highest good. This is the Mount Everest and the pinnacle of all that is good, all that is right, and all that is true. The chief end of all of God's works is the magnification and the exaltation of His own glory. It is the master theme of all of God's works. It is the grand aim. It is the chief purpose. It is the overriding goal. It is the chief passion within God's own heart, and it must be the driving passion of the Christian as well. In all that we do as Christians whether we eat, whether we drink, or whatever we do, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, that we are to do it all for the glory of God. Even the five solas that were recovered and proclaimed during the Protestant Reformation all affirm this as well. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, meaning that the Bible is the sole written divine revelation, and Scripture alone can bind the conscience of the believer absolutely. Sola fide, by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith, and it is the sole ground of our right standing and acceptance before God. Sola Christos, Christ alone. Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is the only mediator through whose life and death that we are redeemed. Solia gratia, by grace alone. Our salvation rests solely on the work of God's grace for us. And solo deo gloria, to God alone belongs the glory. Each and every sola is important, but the first four really exist to preserve and to hold up and to magnify the last one, namely the glory of God. By sola scriptura, we declare the glory of God's authority by noting that only His inspired, inerrant Word can command us absolutely. Sola fide, sola Christos, sola gratia, all find their apex and all find their pinnacle in exalting God's glory and salvation, and that God and God alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, saves people from sin and death. And one of the greatest displays of the glory of God is when the worst of sinners like me and you are brought to salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this, how everything in salvation is for the purpose of God's glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, he talks about election and predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness. Then Paul says that all these things, all these blessings culminate and find their end goal for this purpose, for that we should be to the praise of God's glory. Not just once, but three times in a Trinitarian response to the Father's electing love, the Son's sacrificial death, and the Spirit's sealing promise, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Salvation doesn't come to us because we deserve it. It doesn't come to us because we're a little bit better than the rest of the world. It doesn't come to us because we're wiser than everyone else. God doesn't save you because you're a likable person. He does not save you because you try hard or you're good looking or you're just an easy person to love or anything else. He saves you so that he can demonstrate his mercy and his love. He saves you so that He can display His power in taking people who are dead in their sins and make them alive. And ultimately, He saves you so that you will be a trophy of His grace and so that all creation can look at you and see a display of the glory of God. And if God is most concerned about His glory, if God is jealous of His own glory and that He will not share it with another, then we must be as well. Ask yourself this morning, is God's glory the most important thing in your life? It must be if you are to follow Him. Is God's glory more important than your earthly possessions? Are you prepared to sacrifice them for the sake of His glory if He calls you to do so? What about your friends, your health, your husband, your wife, your parents, your children? Jesus said, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It is a question of where your treasure is. Is it in the pleasures of this life or is it in the glory of God forevermore? When you finally come to the point where you can say, Lord, your glory is more important than all these earthly things. Take all my idols that I cling to and smash them into the ground until there is only one thing that remains, and that is you and your glory. When you come to that point, then we have the heart that reflects God's heart, that is zealous for his glory. Zacchaeus was such a man. He was at the bottom of the barrel when it came to the social hierarchy. A beggar had more respect and more clout than he had, and they would have had zero. He would have been a negative. And yet he realized that to live for the glory of God meant that he had to let go of all that he trusted, all that he had desired, all that he felt that gave him joy, and he had to give it up and live for the glory of God. We mentioned last week that he was the chief tax collector, the only time that this is mentioned in the New Testament, exemplifying and magnifying the fact that he is of the lowest of the low. Tax collectors were isolated from the synagogues and the temple worship. They were viewed as traitors. And yet here sat Zacchaeus, who was at the top of the traitor pile. We said that they were in Jericho, which would have meant it Like they were living in Naples, it had an even climate, good sunshine, a big city with lots of amenities. It smelled as good as it looked with all the roses and the balsam plantations. It sat on a major trade route, meaning that it had a lot of money coming in and going out of it. And here Zacchaeus lived, residing over it as the chief tax collector, meaning that he was in charge of one of the three regional tax collection centers at the time in Israel. Caesarea and Capernaum being the other two, and he would have lived in Jericho by making his living from skimming off the top and collecting taxes. It would have been if Zacchaeus was living in Naples, and all the tax collectors from Atlanta and Birmingham and Orlando and Tampa all brought their money to him before it went to Washington, D.C. But in this case, Zacchaeus would then send it on to the Romans, and he was hated, he was isolated, he was avoided. He didn't have a circle of friends because he didn't have enough friends to make a circle. And he made his money off of a criminal enterprise. He was the worst of the worst, and yet Jesus Christ is going to set his gaze and his sights on him. But Jesus wants to see Jesus. Perhaps he had heard in his network of tax collectors all the things that Jesus was saying and doing with them. Perhaps he had heard that Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners like they accused him of in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Maybe he heard of uh, Levi, the tax collector, who was called to follow Jesus in Luke chapter 5. And he got up and he left everything behind. And so Jesus wants to know, who is this Jesus? Zacchaeus wants to know, who is this Messiah? But as Jesus is coming by, he can't get a good look because the crowd is too large and he is too short. So he climbs up a sycamore branch to get a a better view of Jesus. And so Jesus stops and he looks up and he calls Zacchaeus by name and he tells him, hurry up, come down here. And he says, I must stay at your house. In other words, I'm coming over to spend the night in your house. I'm going to be staying with you. Now, Zacchaeus could have never anticipated anything like this was going to happen because he knew he was a defiled person. And no one who considered himself righteous or clean would ever come near him, let alone into his house. He only wanted to get a a glimpse of Jesus, and yet he got a whole lot more. And then to top all of that off, to eat a meal with him was tantamount to saying, I accept you. Now this would have shocked the Jewish community uh, for Jesus to say such a thing. You didn't invite yourself over to other people's houses, and you certainly didn't eat with the likes of a person like Zacchaeus. He was the worst of the worst. He was riffraff. He was an extortioner, a thief, and a robber, and someone who abused and harmed people. He stole from them, he impoverished them, and he abused them in every sense possible. And so, with Jesus' self-invitation, Zacchaeus is overjoyed with gladness, which tells us that he wanted to see Jesus for more than just curiosity's sake. He would have been cut off from the temple worship, as we mentioned. If he would have have showed up on the temple grounds, they would have found him to be unclean, and they would have quickly escorted him out of the east gate. And that's why we saw the tax collector in in chapter 18. He came to the temple, and he's standing from some distance away, it said in verse 13, because the Jews wouldn't want someone like that around the temple grounds. So Zacchaeus is isolated from God. He's isolated from worship, isolated from religion, and he's isolated from hope. And yet in typical fashion, we see the crowd react in verse 7 with grumbling, the complete opposite of Zacchaeus's reaction. They say he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the word for guest there suggests that Jesus is doing a little bit more than just coming over for a cup of coffee or dinner, because to be a guest of, that phrase literally means to unhitch or to unhitch the pack of animals for the night. He's coming to stay and he's going to hang out for a while. And the crowd has learned a little, very little about Jesus' ministry because all they can do is look at this and grumble and complain. Now that's where we left off with Zacchaeus jumping down out of the tree and getting ready to host the Lord Jesus Christ into his home. But then look in verse 8 with me where it says, Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four." times as much. Now something dramatic just happened between 7 and 8. You went from a man who was an extortioner to a philanthropist. You've got a man who lived as a thief and now he wants to give. You've got someone who spent his life patting his pockets with dishonest gain, now wanting to be charitable and to make restitution. In other words, what Zacchaeus is saying here is, is that what I care about in my life has radically changed. What I value in life is completely different. I don't want to steal from people anymore. I want to see the poor's uh, afflictions alleviated. I want to make restitution to those who I've defrauded, even if it costs me greatly. And this is really just evidence that Zacchaeus' heart has been changed because he wants to engage in good works. Not that the good works are going to get him into heaven, But this is evidence that his faith will. Paul said in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. The fruit demonstrates the root. You remember what James said in James chapter 2. He said, faith without works is dead. It says in Ephesians 2.10, that you were saved unto good works, which God has, uh, has before ordained, that you should walk in them. This is a natural consequence of supernatural transformation. And this shows us that the demands of the gospel are intensely practical, so much so that they include a reorientation of our material possessions. One's grip on the things of this world, are dramatically loosened. One's affections are changed. In Luke six twenty four, Jesus said, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. And Jesus is pronouncing this woe because of their self-sufficiency, their self-reliance, that the rich can become the opposite of those he came to preach the gospel to. In Luke 12, 20, verse 20 and 21, Jesus taught the solemn words to all who trust in their riches. He said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up for himself treasure and is not rich towards God. In Luke 16:13, Jesus taught the spiritual axiom that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and the other one he will love or else he will be devoted to the one and despised the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus said over and over and over again that it is absolutely useless to talk of loving him, of having faith in him, of trusting him, of knowing of the sweetness of his grace, and talking of the assurance of the glorious hope of heaven unless it makes a radical difference in your attachment to the things of this world. Zacchaeus was such a man. He recognized his sinfulness. He recognized that he has defrauded people, and he says, I'm going to give back fourfold. Now, why did he say fourfold? Because in Exodus 22:1, 1, if you rob someone with violence and destruction, a fourfold response was required of you. He could have cited Numbers 5, which simply required one-fifth or a 20% restitution. But Zacchaeus went to the max. He said, you know what? I've done this. I am guilty. I've done it violently. I've done it destructively. I did it all for myself, and I will gladly pay it back to the max. He knew his Old Testament law, and this is evidence of his renewed heart and his transformation. This stands in such a stark contrast to the rich young ruler who wanted to know what's the minimum that he could get away with to eternal to gain eternal life. It's not, "Oh, is that what I'm supposed to do? How little can I do and get away with it? How little can I obey and still be considered a Christian? How close can I walk to that edge?" It's, look, just show me the maximum demonstration of obedience, and that is what I want to do. This is the real deal. And he was determined to do more than he was asked and more than the law required. There wasn't any law that said, give half of everything you have to the poor. He would have probably given more, but he needed to keep half because he was going to pay back 400% of what he had defrauded people to the maximum of the Old Testament allowance. This is the kind of obedience that marks one who has denied himself, he is taking up his cross, he is following Jesus Christ, and he doesn't live on the minimal, but he lives on the maximum level of obedience. Are you living to the maximum level of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Are there things in your life that you are holding on to from your old self that you still haven't let go of? Are you denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following after Him? Are you dressed for battle, having put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? Are you living to the maximum level of obedience To the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish preacher, a professor, and a leader in the 19th century. And he was a leader of what became the Free Church of Scotland, formed in 1843. And he preached a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the idea behind that sermon was simply this that you can't fight a sin that you love, you can't fight an idol of the heart. You can't fight a desire that is set on the wrong place by some sort of simple act of just willing not to do that thing. You have to have a new affection, a greater power that motivates you to love that thing, to focus your desires on that affection rather than on, uh, on that idol, rather than on that sin, and rather that old desire. And Chalmers, in that message, he talks about when a person is converted, you have a new affection. Your heart is set on God. Your heart is set on Christ. It's changed by the gospel so that who you worship is now different. You don't worship you. You worship God. You don't love this world and use God. You use this world and you love God. And what we see in this story is the evidence of a new affection in Zacchaeus' heart. Whereas he had been a rich man, and he had been made wealthy by unsavory and unscrupulous means, suddenly, all of a sudden, he is on fire for Christ. He's giving away the stuff that was the object of his old affection. Now, you remember when Jesus, that Jesus had said to the young, young uh, rich young ruler, he said, give all of your goods to the poor, sell it all, give it all to the poor, and follow me. Now, that passage, by the way, or this passage, by the way, is proof that Jesus' theology of possession was not that Christians have no right to own any of them. It wasn't a certain percentage that Jesus was going after, but the point was that money and possessions were no longer Zacchaeus's God. And as a result of that, look what Jesus says to him in verse 9. He says, "...today salvation has come to this house because he, too, is a son of Abraham." In other words, we all just watched a camel go through the eye of a needle. We've just seen a rich man come to salvation through the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what in the world does it mean that he is a son of Abraham? He was the son of Abraham before Jesus showed up, physically speaking. Because what did the Jews always say? They said, we are of the child or the children of Abraham, right? And Jesus would say to them, you know what, you're you're of your father, the devil. But Jesus would say to them, if God wanted to raise up children to Abraham, he could raise them up out of these stones. You think you're you're the children of Abraham? You are ethnically, you might be genetically, you might be by heritage or race, but this man is a son of Abraham who is a true son of Abraham. Paul tells us in Romans 2.28, He says, a Jew is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but is one inwardly. It's not about circumcision and religion on the outside, but it's about the heart. Here is a true son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith, and all who put their trust in God as Abraham put his trust in God, then, in a sense, are the children of Abraham. And Zacchaeus, that very day, was justified. He who was lost was saved, delivered from death and sin and hell. The Lord sought him. The Lord convicted him of his sin. The Lord proclaimed to him the truth. The Lord opened his heart to believe and repent. And a miracle came through his transformed life. There was a party in heaven that day. This is a real story at a real place with real people. This is not just something that was made up. There was a party in heaven. Luke 15 reminds us that there is great joy in heaven when one sinner repents. The Lord throws a celebration, as it were, whenever lost people are found, whenever they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For as verse 10 tells us, for that's what he came to do, to seek and to save the lost. We were all in the same state that Zacchaeus was in. This is not only the spiritual biography of Zacchaeus, but this is our spiritual biography as well. We were all lost. We were all spiritually dead. We were defiled. We were slaves of sin, full of guilt, living in ignorance, darkness. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were alienated from the life of God. We were blinded by the God of this world, and we could not subject ourselves to the law of God because we had no capacity to do that. But it was only by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that we can live lives to the glory of God alone. Some of you may be like Zacchaeus, sitting in a tree, as it were, looking at him from a distance, curious about him, but you haven't come down and embraced the reality of your own sinfulness. And I pray that this day when he calls your name, you will not harden your heart and you will hear his voice and you will receive him like Zacchaeus gladly. But for those of you who are believers this morning, I want to ask you, are you living your lives to the glory of God? Are you in tune with Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost and looking for those who might be on the periphery of society and those who might be looked down in our culture and being like Jesus Christ and seeking and saving those so they can be a demonstration of the glory of God. For the story of Zacchaeus teaches us, and it gives us great hope, that those that are considered unsavable are the very ones that God gets glory in redeeming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... This account that's here for our benefit, that there is no dungeon so dark where the penetrating light of the gospel of Jesus Christ can't break through. Even the hardest of sinners you can redeem and save and adopt and do it all for the praise of your glory. Father, help us to be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us. Help us to be seeking and saving the lost, just as we have seen our Lord do here this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.